Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 70 of the podcast, the topic is the future of clean tech. Our guest is Neil Dykman, managing partner and founder of Energy Transition Ventures and chairman of the cleantech.org network. Now a quick word from one of our partners. Cleantech.org is a leading virtual research institute and incubator to the cleantech sector with an online membership base of over 45,000. Subscribe to the site to learn more about cleantech and meet scientists and entrepreneurs to commercialize your ideas. Contact info at cleantech.org. That's cleantech.org. In this conversation, we talk about where we currently stand on energy transition. We discuss the disruptive forces of technology, regulation, business models, and social dynamics, and what the role is of energy policy versus the free market. Which energy models to trust? The emergent energy mix and how it will evolve. When will renewables surpass fossil fuels in the US and globally? We discuss exciting startups, emerging business model plays, macro trends, and the role of clean energy into the next decade. Neil, great to see you. How are you? Morning, Tron. It has been uh, it's been a while. I'm delighted to see you again. I'm doing pretty well. That's good to hear. And I actually used the wrong word here because we're a podcast. You know, good to see you. But we, of course, see each other, and the people who get on the video will will enjoy. But it is actually good to hear your voice. Is what I meant. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway. Neil, um, you are this uh, serial entrepreneur slash venture capital slash, uh, you know, environmentalist slash uh, libertarian. There are so many things and it's almost impossible to know where to start with you, which I think is the, uh, is the hallmark of a, of a good guest. But, but anyway, um, you are now involved with at least two different ventures that we're going to talk about. But in your past, you have worked at Royal Dutch Shell uh, Jane Capital Partners, you built up cleantech.org, this uh, massive website uh, discussing and, and you know making progress on clean tech and building a community around it. Uh, what else have I forgotten and how did you get to where you are, which is you have run for uh, office in Texas, you have been deeply involved with both politics and the environment and massive amounts of commercialization. How, how did you get there and, and why are you at this point? You need to, have you traced your psychology and figured out how, how this all happened? Some of it is probably just dumb luck. And some of it was a series of really bad mistakes that worked out properly in the end. Uh, and, you know, and, uh, but it's, it's interesting when you kind of go back through the story. You know, we're, we're all a bit of a creature of where we come from. I grew up you know, in Houston, so energy is in, in, in the water here. You know, the, the one phrase that I used to use when I was doing speaking spots 10 years ago was energy is life and the rest is just details. You know, because every single aspect of our economy and our life is driven by energy. And so, you know, when I was young, got out of college, basically stumbled into an investment banking job. In fact, I got turned down for more interviews than you could shake a stick at. And finally, Bankers Trust, the energy group here in Houston and New York, was 
Well, they were desperate for an analyst and I was desperate for a job and we were a match made in heaven. And I ended up in just an amazing group was working for some guys who trained me that basically all went on to run companies or be CFOs, uh, just a terrific group of people. A couple of years in, Deutsche had bought it and I did not want to you know, continue. The culture was changing and I did not want to necessarily be pigeonholed into energy. That was literally my, my fear. And I was you know, determined to avoid business school at all costs. So I went out to a private equity fund in California that was doing manufacturing turnarounds. Figured I'd learn how to do the operating side of a business. And uh, that lasted you know, not too terribly long, though we had some quite some fun there. The uh, uh, I was joined a manufacturing private equity firm in Silicon Valley in 1999 at the height of the dot-com boom, which is not ideal. I very quickly realized I either need to get in tech or go home. Yeah, so I got yeah hired by yeah from a friend of a friend got hired into the venture capital firm behind yellowpages.com and a few others and learned tech in 2001 through kind of a baptism by fire. And yeah, after the tech wreck, my boss there, Jane Linder, who'd been a longtime venture capitalist and kind of one of the first female venture capitalists in the Valley. Yeah. She, yeah. And I pulled the team and set up Jane Capital. And at the time, 2001, you know, software was basically dead, surprisingly enough, in a very odd way. Yeah. And we wanted to do something different where we saw the best deals in whatever sector we were working in. She liked, and my other partners liked environmental. I liked energy. And in 2001 in California, that meant clean tech. You know, so we got in on the very ground floor of clean tech. And some of the guys who helped create and define the, the clean tech term, yeah, would troop through our office. We'd have meetings and, you know, none of us were very important uh, at, at the time. Yeah. And the sector kind of exploded. And to be honest, I resisted the term for a while because I really liked, preferred to talk about what we did as energy technology. And, uh, and until one day I got it in my head that we needed to get some branding presence. And, um, yeah, my Rolodex was such that I could no longer go through my Rolodex on a regular basis and, and, and talk to everybody in a year. It was just too big. You can only call so many people a day. So I needed to do something to keep track of friends. And that's when cleantech.org was born. It's this like, yeah, concept that, well, the world needs a, a central, a central place to, to, to meet and talk about things. Clean tech is not like the valley or energy. It's, geographically distributed. There's no center of gravity. So we'll just build one on the web. And I hired a guy and we built a portal. Yeah. And then figuring that content is king, we need some content. I started writing clean tech blog. Very quickly realized that was hard to do by oneself. So I, I Tom Sawyer, some really, really smart friends into blogging with me. And we'd each do a, an article a day, a day, kind of one column a week type thing. And uh, um, the end result became a couple of years later, we were called by the London Times, one of the top 50 business blogs in the world, alongside of TechCrunch and Freakonomics and some people that were a lot better than us. And uh, but probably my favorite one was Wall Street Journal did a 10-year blogiversary story. And the CEO of Craigslist at the time, which was my favorite site in the whole wide world, yeah, listed us as a must-read. And I don't think he knows who I am. Yeah, but I certainly know who he is. And I still have that, you know, it's probably the most uh, my favorite accolade of, of my entire life. Yeah. And so that just kind of got me into the media world, you know, in a, you know, as kind of a, a blogger and alternative media. And so we just kept doing it because it's, it's fun. But that wasn't a profession. We never made that into a company. Cleantech.org was basically our big, massive, giant private export network. Yeah. So we always had a advantage on other investors and other companies because we just knew more people and we knew more stuff. 
and in, and still to this day, yeah, in a couple of phone calls, yeah, or going through the 50,000 people in our groups on LinkedIn, I can find anyone I need who is really close, yeah, to get engaged with on, on a new topic. So, but that wasn't the real business. The real business, we started off in 2001 advising Macquarie Bank's technology fund. They had a technology fund and it was migrating startups from Australia to the US. And essentially you had to kind of incubate them and launch them, very similar to what we were doing behind uh, yellowpages.com. And then we incubated this, that one of the first ones we did was this tiny little company that was doing a green shield for uh, uh, EMF shielding for electronic products. Yeah, uh, basically plastics to replace lead and or metallized plastics. And we ended up floating that in, in London as one of the first U.S. to aim IPOs in 2004, a few years later. And uh, um, and so that and those two activities, you know, basically set the definition for the next dozen years of my life. We decided, well, if we could do, you know, those guys, if we could do that one. We'll go do some of our own. And so we ended up founding probably six, seven, eight companies out of Jane Capital. Uh, over the next decade, uh, the last one being SmartWires, which has gone on to be a, a quite a successful company doing power flow controls for the transmission grid. And then we did, um, after the Macquarie work, we fell into learning how to do corporate venture before anyone else was doing it and not lose your shirt. So I was the advisor to ConocoPhillips's emerging tech arm when they wanted to launch. We were the advisor to Meridian Energy, New Zealand state-owned power companies, you know, $400 million uh, um, venture capital arm. Uh, then we were, and a few others, and then was working on an advisory to Shell when they basically hired me to come eat my own killing. Yeah, after I told them what to do, they said, well, will you come help us do it? And it was, I'd already moved back to Texas from Silicon Valley, and it was in, in Houston, and uh, uh, really, really nice people and a great firm, and yeah, I had a brand new baby, and it sounded like a, a perfect job for a few years. Yeah, so, but I'm not a corporate guy, and I was never going to be a long-term yeah, corporate animal. They, we both knew that going in. So my last job there was spinning out Shell's first tech spin out in 20 years. Yeah, a company called Salamander Solutions, yeah, doing thermal technology for yeah, oil and gas and, and energy, um, a technology that we created out of the largest R&D program in the oil patch, over $2 billion spent in order to build a refinery underground, which it turns out you can literally take oil shale and plug it into a green grid and if you want, produce basically low carbon fuels straight up, you know, the drill pipe and there's no refinery. You know, they literally, you can, it's almost, it's, you know, it's, it's light stuff that you can almost run in, in a, with very little, you know, work can almost run in your truck. We did thermal, we did thermal cracking underground. It was an amazing program. Um, got sunsetted because Shell had moved away from the heavy oils, but the technology inside with a thousand patents in it. Just amazing stuff. So we created a company out of that. And that was that was my last corporate gig, and I'm still very excited to see how how those guys yeah you know, will end up panning out. They're located here in Houston. And, but just to yeah. finish off on this uh, track here, how did you then get to the Libertarian ticket running against uh, Beto and and Ted Cruz? How how does that fit in? I, I don't quite make it work with uh, with all the business on on the corporate side. You remember the last election, right? I uh, do. Not. not 2020, but the 2016 one. It's you hard, remember, but yes. <laughs> right. It's fading into the background now. You remember how mad everybody was? Yeah. Well, among other things, I'm going down my voter card, you know, at the, my, my ballot at the time, and I'm looking at who's on my list. And there's a bunch of people running unopposed. And, and that's not the way the world should work. And like most people, I was not happy with the outcome of the 2016 election it, yeah, um, uh, with any of my choices. 
Yeah. So I voted for Gary Johnson. And we had a here in Texas, we had a railroad commission candidate who broke records for, for votes and uh, as a libertarian and got the endorsement of every major newspaper in Texas. And I'm staring at my house district guy, you know, rep who has run on a and run at the time and run on a post in both Republican primary and general election for like eight years. It's a cakewalk and nobody should have a cakewalk. So I'm like, you know what? Look, I've got time. I need to, you know, it's time to give something back. I started doing a lot of work, volunteer work at the, at the church and started, um, yeah, reached out and said, I'd like to, I'd like to join the party. Uh, and I'd like to, I'd like to run. By the time I was done, they talked me into running for U.S. Senate, which when I agreed to do it, Beto was not yet a thing. He was it was the fall and he hadn't really demonstrated anything yet. And there were no libertarians who had filed to run. Yeah. By the time I um, uh, woke up after the filing, there were five libertarians running. I was in a contested race in a party that I knew nothing about. You know, I'd never been inside the party apparatus before. never hadn't met all the kind of the core people. And Beto was out raising yeah, um, crews, and this was going to be a horse race. And so I wasn't quite sure what I'd got myself into. So I buckled down and in 90 days took 70% of the libertarian vote in our convention process to, you know, to out of that field of five in order to win the nomination. And I woke up the next day and realized that, yeah, this was you know, the biggest Senate race the country had ever seen. And I was, as, as a, a rancher in, you know, in, in, Marfa, Texas, explained to me when I met him at the post office, he says, oh, you're the fly in the ointment. <laughs> um, yeah. So rule yeah. number one, so, that, so it was, and you know, the, the, why did we do it? Well, it was real simple. Somebody has to. If you don't give voters a choice with candidates who have the skills and capability to do the job, yeah, they turn off, they don't vote, or they vote against the person they hate. And that's not the way politics should work. So our goal was to start making each part party so afraid of that middle or crossover or swing voter in the general election that they stopped listening to the fringes of their own primary election. Hmm, and we came close. We we had a shot to basically not cruise out and flip the Senate, not because I like Beto better than Cruz. And yeah, and it's unclear that all our votes would have actually come out of Cruz. But the Cruz campaign was pretty convinced that our existence was the only mortal threat they faced that year, that Beto could not win without me taking a lot of votes. So they did things like ensure I did not get in the debates. In fact, Beto used my challenge to debate him privately, very secretly, to force Cruz in less than 24 hours into the debate cycle, months before he was going to. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Cruz was never going to allow me anywhere near it because they figured hand indictment a microphone was the only way to lose enough votes yeah, to uh, to cost them, yeah, cost them Texas. Uh, right or wrong, that was their that was their view. So it was a really I did, was not intending to spend that much time, but sitting at the top of the ticket of the entire this was the largest you know, federal race in 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 the country in 2018 for a third party. And so I basically took a year off to carry the flag for the libertarians, and I'm very very glad I did. Not profitable, yeah. The outcome was about as you would have expected. Uh, we came close to yeah, impacting the outcome of the Senate race. We made them feel it. Yeah, they, and we certainly changed the debate, yeah, um, uh, the, the debate plan for Cruz and a few other things. Got a bunch of press when we went after Beto and CNN for running a one-hour advertorial. Um, and we think we've changed CNN's entire yeah, yeah, 
electoral coverage strategy after that, but I lost as expected. And, uh, and then went well, back I to mean, work. I, I think as you pointed out very early in this conversation, right, you know, you applied to a lot of jobs and got turned down. And I, I think I have applied to probably 700 jobs and most of them you get turned down to, but then you get other things out of it. What would you say, just this particular experience, do you have any idea what's going to come out of that experience apart from possibly changing CNN's coverage and you know the, all the external things what what did it teach you personally i mean are you a different person now that you know more about the dynamics of of, of politics what are you going to use this insight for absolutely the yeah but everything you do changes yeah it, it, it you build off your your experience i ran that campaign like a shoestring startup yeah if we want to win one, really want to win one, we're going to have to outraise the other guy. And that wasn't going to happen in a Senate race where $100 million was raised. You know, in the right. next is, that's your conclusion. It's like if, if you're going to come into a race as an underdog in America in a Senate race, there is no way to start up this thing. I mean, in other words, it doesn't work like innovation in other domains uh, where you was, can actually outraise people based on brain power. I was outraised several thousand to one. I didn't try to raise money like I would. In, I mean, and I, and I know how to raise money. I've done that before. Yeah. The, I'm not sure dropping a million dollars in that race would have changed the outcome for, for me. You know, it was, uh, but we learned, you know, one of the ancillary goals was learn enough to figure out how a third party can take a race and change the narrative in politics. So our goal, third party role for 200 years in America is change the narrative. It's drive the main parties to make change. If you win, great. But if you lose, force them to move to where they should be, force them to behave properly. So that's the secondary goal. And, and we're not done. You know, we'll, we'll do something else at some point. You know, I'm not, I did not run this cycle. And uh, uh, frankly, my, my wife told me I was permitted to run again when my children, who are oldest at seven, is able to vote next. Um, so yeah, uh, we'll, yeah, but we're, we're not done. Um, yeah. I would argue a campaign is no different than a startup. You run it the same way. Now, in this case, I was a brand new campaigner and I had no idea what I was doing. So we made every mistake in the book. Uh, the, yeah, and the, and looking back on a, on a personal level, the, my daughters know I ran for U.S. Senate. They're pretty sure I should have won and they will grow up understanding that it doesn't matter how big the challenge is. Yeah. It's okay for you to take a shot on goal and it's okay to get beat. And that lesson alone on a personal level would have been worth it despite anything that came out of it for me. That's, that's incredibly powerful. I think if a lot more people understood this, they would individually make different choices. And I think the world would look different too. Neil. That's, that's for sure. That's but it was, sure. it was a year, you know, we'll call it a vacation. I, I, I did not do much productive work in that year because it really consumed your time. So then we got back to it afterwards and yeah, during the campaign, we had run across a, um, uh, a, the, his, um, I'd been looking to do more rental properties. Yeah. Cause we always had, my family's been investing in rental, you know, in, in rental property since the sixties when my granddad, who was you know, a poor farm boy came out of depression, didn't trust the banks or the stock market. That was how he invested his money. Hmm. And the market had moved and I needed to find some different areas to buy in than what we used to do as a family. And I, but I'm a history major originally, and I had stumbled across, you know, the down in Houston City Core, all these little old bungalows and 
and uh, and Victorian houses that are just getting torn down because they're viewed as too small, and so they get torn down, and a, and a McMansion gets built in their place for townhomes. And I'm like, you know what? I don't think we should tear those houses down. I like them; they're pretty. I'd like to live in one, so I think I'm going to buy a few, and I'm going to I'm 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 going to restore them. And it turns out there are a series of tax credit programs that are actually the precursors to the tax credit programs around the renewable energy for the solar ITC was the, the precursor to that was the historic tax credit programs from the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and there, the Texas had rolled out one. So there's a couple of state and federal tax credit programs that yeah, um, nobody had ever bothered to apply to rent houses because the government forms to get through to do it are so onerous that you, know, you can't afford to unless you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? This looks like an 80 page business plan. This doesn't look very complicated. I, I think we can do this. And so we bought a couple down in Houston's historic neighborhood and restored them. They rented in hours to the first yeah. person through the door. Yeah. They came out amazing. And we proved that, that one can do this model. So we stood up a small fund and started yeah, doing that at, at uh, kind of the next pilot scale. And just like any normal startup, start with one, demonstrate I can do it too. Now we're doing an order of magnitude bigger than that. And as soon as the ones we've got going now are finished, we'll do an order of magnitude bigger than that. And we'll go do a thousand houses by the time we're done. Yeah. And one of the fun things out of it is we, we learned a couple of things that kind of tie back to my, to my tech world. Number one, these are, we're doing 80% new construction. All we keep is the antique wood. Antique wood and glass, everything else, new systems, new services, new electrical, new plumbing, new everything. But we don't insulate and we don't replace the windows because historic guidelines don't let you kind of rip up the old material. And these old antique houses are 100-year-old uh, pier and beam houses supposed to break. And what we found is they will perform on an energy basis as well as new construction. And they're natively smaller and you're not bulldozing and then building three stories based on with, with concrete and, and wood and sheetrock. So if you look at it on a life cycle basis, what we're doing is more carbon friendly than any other new construction project that can compete in the entire country. It's not even close because everybody else is, is bulldozing a house, bearing the demo penalty, which is not small, and then doing new construction. And all we're doing is rerunning systems and refreshing you know, the materials. And in fact, the materials, that 100-year-old wood is so hard, a termite won't eat it. Yeah, it's, uh, it'll handle water intrusion in ways that the modern wood won't because it's, it's the old grain. And people have literally been bulldozing this stuff and throwing it in the dumpsters. Hmm. Yeah, And so we realized that we're actually able to deliver a, uh, a more a scalable and more carbon-friendly solution than the whole construction industry. Then we added one other thing. We did a bunch of testing to figure out, so what does it actually take to put a smart home in a historic house? Because we have, you know, we remove gas from our properties now. For the first time in my family's history, we do not put gas in the houses, all electric. The tech is the, the core products, the electric heaters and the hot water heaters are now there. And so we're kind of looking at some of the smart home tech and thinking, all right, is it there yet? Well, we think for less than a thousand bucks, you can deliver a complete smart home of this type. Wow. This is this is amazing, and it's partly an answer to kind of where we're moving next. You know, where do we currently stand on energy transition? I mean, let, you know, let's talk about the venture you're talking about uh, that you have just started, but let's also talk about energy transition as a, a you know as a concept because right. you know we talked about politics earlier, and uh, you know the U.S. right now, and arguably the world at least, the discussion is you know 
are we at the cusp of where we either take massive actions and sort of stop this thing, or is it sort of too late and uh, you know we're sort of just living with this new world reality? But you have a pretty unique take on energy transition. Uh, tell me a little bit about what, what that is about. Where are we with energy right now when it comes to the importance or not of policy and the importance or not of technology to massive sort of uh, contested yeah. uh, issues. The, I think this is the most exciting time in energy in in hundred years. Yeah, I'm I'm really pumped, and for the first time, you know, so my my pa- partner and I are getting back into the game. We're we're launching a new venture fund, Energy Transition Ventures, and yeah, we've uh, uh, we're we think now is the time to to play. Two three years ago is a good time, but. Today, I think the battlefield is finally open, the market's there, and the tech is there. Yeah. I completely disagree that it's too late. Yeah, if, if dealing just with climate change, I completely disagree that it's too late. In fact, I think what's really, really exciting, you know, policymakers continually underestimate how effectively the free market and companies are capable of delivering scalable solutions. Yeah. So the good news is we're behind the curve of where you know the science says, okay, we need to be working in order to deliver X. Pick your favorite, you know, um, uh, degree solution. Yeah. Um, great. That's fine. But the good news is this is not a linear curve. It's an exponential curve, and we can adjust the rate of change on that curve. And most likely, we're going to see a lot more help. From the corporate and the, and the and the private sector on the back end than you could ever imagine. So we can prop. So if somebody tells you if we act now, we can solve this by 2050 by their model. The real answer is nope. We can solve it by 2037. Yeah, because that curve can actually be bent. Yeah, it's the yeah, and, and that's pretty exciting. And then we look around and say, you know what? So is this a technology problem? Are we sitting where we were in 2003 when I was writing articles saying, look? It's called alternative energy because it's more expensive. The moment it is not more expensive, we're not going to call it alternative energy. We're just going to call it energy because it's just BTUs and kilowatt hours. Well, we're there. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Lazard study, which began the annual cost study on solar and storage, just came out. And, and I love those guys. They do great work. And yeah, for probably the second or third year in the row, but yeah, they, 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 Drop the benchmark that nobody's yet listening to. Solar and wind unsubsidized in are going in and they're cheaper on a average cost to install the whole thing than the marginal cost to run a gas or coal-fired power plant. Do you know what happens to the world in energy when a thing with no fuel cost is cheaper than the marginal cost of something with fuel? Yeah. Hmm. Imagine what's going to happen to asset values across the power sector. You would never today build a new gas or coal-fired power plant of any type unless you could not build renew- you know, solar or wind on an economic basis. Yeah. The so wh- why, then, why then the big deal? I mean, why is there so many people in this debate are they just not informed? They haven't read the Lazar report? They haven't been tracking these trends? Because I've I feel like I've heard even from like oil and gas executives that 
they're kind of entering this language. They're starting to talk about it, but maybe politically they can't really say all these things because right now they have to talk about sustainability and, and all that stuff and, and how mm-hmm. you know they're, they're really working hard at this. But the reality is, of course, <laughs> they're not working that hard in the sense that they're actually just following what the logic of the market would tell them to do. So, yeah, let's, let's parse that. There's, there's, a, there's a couple of things in there. Yeah, um, the... Most of the time when smart people, you know, say, oh, that's dumb, you know, gas is still cheaper than solar, for example. They're really just working with two or three year old data. Yeah, it's they're not actually tracking the curve and they're not extrapolating the next 12 months. I'm not talking about these five and 10 year out and 15, 20 year out models. They're worthless. You know, the, the deterministic models do not have not been capturing and do not capture you know, disruptive technology and energy. But you can reasonably forecast 12 and 24 month out directional impacts. You can look forward and say, okay, solar prices were here and volumes were here 18 months ago. Yeah. What's the pipeline look like? Where are they likely to be in another 18 months? And understand, are you seeing headwinds or, or tailwinds? Yeah. So in most cases, I, I, and I, and I talk these, I mean, I've got friends all over the energy sector. I'm one of the few people that has spent huge chunks of career in both tech, oil and gas, and clean tech. Yeah. And so I've, I've got friends, and, and these friends, Tron, they don't speak to one another. Software and tech people from the Valley, they've never met someone who worked in an, a true oil and gas company. They've never met someone who knows, they've never been on a drone rig. They don't, they talk about fracking, but they literally could not explain the steps or even define what it is. They don't know. And my oil and gas friends who are, you know, in Houston is chock full of amazing technical talent. Yeah. Um, they've never seen a solar company. They've never installed. So they, they just don't, the worlds don't communicate like they will need to going forward. Well, that's a good thing because it means there's a lot of low hanging fruit. So usually when you talk to someone in the, uh, in the oil and gas sector who says, well, renewables aren't ready yet. They were right X number of years ago and they just haven't gone and they're busy with their job. They haven't gone and looked at anything new. Yeah. We look at continually look at kind of the state of the industry on both sides. And yeah, this, you know, the, the renewables are here to stay. They don't have to replace all of gas. For example, the two products go together well. The real fight is between gas and storage, because in reality, you don't need as much storage on the grid if you keep, you know, um, if you keep gas generation around. Yeah, you can actually make these things fit together very, 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 very well and slaughter greenhouse gases and destroy costs. So what we're going to see is batteries are going to take the um, kind of the spinning reserve, the ancillary services, the power side of peaking. Yeah, gas is going to take the long-term storage side of of, uh, of of the variability in load in the grid, and renewables and wind are going to take base load. But yeah, the real question to what do you do when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't, yeah, it isn't, um, uh, isn't blowing? Well, that's what we have gas fired plants for and that's what we have battery storage for. And you don't use one or the other. You use the, that combination of four will wipe out greenhouse gases in the power sector and deliver cheaper power than we've ever seen before. We're moving to a world where the marginal cost of power is effectively zero. And it's going to continue. It's, an, it's headed towards that asymptote, which is amazing for all of us. 
And every company needs to figure out how are we going to make money in this new world? Because these markets are going to be, they're big, right? You know, energy transition is basically code for, you know, um, trillions of dollars of investment, not trillions of dollars of green new deal cash thrown down the drain. Trillions of dollars of companies making a lot of money and driving out costs for the consumer. Yeah, the, so I'm very, very excited about where this is. And my life, I, I make all my money arbitraging between clean tech worlds and oil and gas worlds and software and tech worlds that don't communicate. So there's an arbitrage. I see how you can make money on the arbitrage. Uh, what does that mean for for the founders? Though, where are you looking for these ventures that actually have, presumably, uh, you do need some startups that have a little bit of that arbitrage, or you need to insert that perspective, right? Because if they're just sitting in right. one end of of this, they're going to also be outgunned by by others who are slowly starting to see this kind of arbitrage that you have. You, you know, the the kind of information from those three uh, different sources. How, where, where do you find startups? I mean, Silicon Valley, as you said, are they're a little bit in a crisis right now because of COVID and other things, but and they certainly don't really see the traditional energy sector. Uh, does that mean that you're looking far outside of Silicon Valley, or do you think you can bridge the gap with traditional Silicon Valley startups starting to slowly see the energy plays, and then you know all around the U.S. Uh, startups where you can insert their technology perspective and then get them uh, going? Right. I've I've done startups on three continents. Yeah. You go where the talent is. You find yep. great tech, and you go where the talent is. And you know, one of the the one of the challenges outside of the valley, to be perfectly honest, it, it's frankly, it's not the venture capitalists in the valley you know, that make it special. It's you can get um, aggregate raw startup talent that knows how to do a startup. Yeah, and in other places, Houston included, it's hard to pull a team. Yeah, so yeah, there's probably more challenges in. Uh, in a in a founding team getting a full team together here than there might be in another in another city yeah um but regardless the problem's still the same find a great team kick ass team throw it against a problem you know create something neat find some customers drive some traction raise enough capital to take a shot on goal yeah and so we do the same thing that we've always done you just look for people it's team technology traction i just repeat that over and over and over again now, underneath, we've seen so many things in clean tech and energy over the years that we've got a very different pattern recognition than other people. And I've got my network that we can obviously reach out to, you know, to both bring in talent as well as, as, as get our arms around around a problem. But that still doesn't change that all that really matters is, is, is the team technology and traction. One of the challenges the investors faced and the Valley faced in clean tech for years, the, uh, the teams that they were hiring didn't necessarily have, and the venture capitalists investing in them, did not necessarily have the right pattern recognition for energy. It'd be like taking an IT team and handing them a drug discovery startup. Yeah, they just don't know what it looks like. So they don't know what to do. Can they learn it? Sure, there's a five-year learning curve, just like there is with anything in life. Yeah, and moving into, into energy, we saw the same thing. Then oil and gas people and energy people would traditionally get into, you know, in, into clean tech venture, and they really didn't understand what the tech startup could do. So either way, you were mispricing risk in, in interesting ways. Today, I think some of that is changing. Yeah, there are, there's better talent in the sector than there ever has been before. People want to work in energy transition. Yeah, and 
that it's still hard to find it and get a great startup back, but there's better talent. Um, one of the other big fun things about energy transition, uh, I, so I wrote, actually wrote the original first history of the term clean tech, published it on news.com where I was writing for at the time and cleantech.org. And, you know, talking about, yeah, how the term was created, the couple of media companies that defined it, you know, the battle between the term green tech, which Kleiner Perkins was trying to push so they didn't have to use somebody else's term and clean tech, which ended up becoming the umbrella asset class term. Yeah. When you think now, a lot of that yeah, nomenclature has shifted to the term of art energy transition. So if you ask yourself why, yeah, the real answer is that appears to be a corporate driven term as opposed to a venture capitalist and media driven term like clean tech. And the corporate driven term is really a recognition that our world is changing. Yeah. I don't want to go throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't want to go drop my whole business today and you know, shift all my CapEx because I cannot find projects profitable enough to do that yet. Yeah. But I need to get on a guide path. So, and that's, I think, why the word transition is there. It's almost like it's the politically palatable and the uh, um, uh, term that allows all of us to coalesce focus around how the world is going to change. And think of it in from my house perspective, right? I've removed gas from the properties. I'm not putting solar on every roof. Doesn't quite make sense to do on these little houses. They happen to be shaded and 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 that sort of thing. So you could even argue my own investment effort in real estate is on an energy transition glide. You've seen Shell, you know, my my former employer, you know, who when I got there five years ago, they didn't want to do, wouldn't let me touch PV. Yeah, didn't want to do software. You look at what they're working on now. Hell, they moved the entire venture group from the CTO's office to the new energies group. Yeah. They committed to the street. They were going to spend two billion a year, which basically they allocated a percentage of CapEx and said, go figure it out. Yeah. Why did they not uh, agree to spend 20 billion a year? Real simple. The projects they were investing in are not as profitable as the oil field projects they were coming from. Yeah. So they'd all gotten fired if they just said, Hey, we're going to go. We're going to go you know, dump all of our, shift all of our CapEx tomorrow. So there was going to be some shift. And you'll see this across corporates. The good news is that mean, the, the existence of the word energy transition means the corporate buyers for companies, the corporate customers, and the capital from the balance sheets is paying attention, building teams, and beginning to flow in ways that will enable that back-end curve to bend in a faster acceleration rate like we were talking about earlier, than you would have expected five years ago. Neil, this is fascinating. I wanted to take this back uh, a notch to talk about, because a lot of my listeners are actually also venture capitalists. Are there any lessons from this clean tech winter, arguably, where you know you you were there early there on? There was no clean tech winter. Okay, so safe. okay. So, all right. Okay. So, so let, 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 a very overused phrase that will annoy some of your listeners. That is actually fake news. All right. So that's fine. Uh, let's let let's talk about what happened though, because clearly some VCs were using clean tech as a term, which you have just told me became too narrow to be palatable for the broader energy industry. That it, far, it, you it agree with me? It didn't again become too narrow. Yeah, clean tech was a term that came out of venture capitalists looking for a new asset class, like they do all the time, because that's what the VC world does. 
And it became the umbrella term that included things from smart grid to mobility to renewables to biofuels to define them all. It became yeah, um, the it was the it's basically the third largest venture sector after IT and biotech, and it, and it still is. Yeah, but it was never a sector. There were no clean tech trade shows because companies identified as a solar company or a biofuels refinery, yeah, or a smart grid utility software company. They didn't identify as a clean tech company. The customers didn't call themselves clean tech. Yeah, so it was really an investment asset class term that basically succeeded in coalescing enough capital to build five or six world-class scale industries. I mean, think about it. Nextera is now bigger than, you know, than Exxon market cap, right? Um, so, but that was, that didn't, the industry is basically fragmented once they got mature. So now we have a new term, energy transition, that is essentially a corporate term bringing the corporate capital in. This first wave in clean tech was not corporate capital. It was mainstream venture capitalists trying to find something post you know, uh, tech, you know, 2001 tech boom to go invest in. It was kicked off in 2004 or five when in a, a large scale, when CalPERS and CalSTRS and their green wave initiative started dumping substantial LP money in and mainstream venture capitalists needed a play. Um, arguably it was a little early, for the mainstream guys, arguably today is the right time. Um, but you know, what then happened is the every in, every venture capitalist and their dog needed to have a clean tech play. And most of them, you know, to be honest, they just mispriced risk because their pattern recognition was not accurate. So a lot of the people that should have made money lost money. Plenty of cash and returns were made, just not by all the players in the deals they thought were going to make them. So we had high profile bus like Solyndra, which was basically a solar cattle grate. That was the stupidest product decision of all time. However, these guys learned how to coat SIGs. Coating SIGs is hard. They're one of two companies able, figured out able to do it. Yeah. So did the tech work? Yes. By the time they got it to market with a, with product decisions they'd done, they were simply twice the cost of where Crystalline had gotten to. Yeah. So the, these guys mispriced risk and then they got sour grapes, but not everybody lost money. In fact, yeah, if you if you want to like put it in one single encapsulation, Tesla alone, single deal, carried more than the returns for the entire clean tech venture capital investment sector globally all by itself. Never. Yeah, I, I don't know that that's ever happened before for a sector. So. But if, and if you were in Tesla and the handful of funds that, that had the, the guts to do that when other people didn't, yeah, they made plenty of money. Um, if you stayed, the longer you stayed in Tesla, the more you made. My own partner, you know, uh, Craig Lawrence was at Excel Partners back in the day. He was the clean tech head over at Excel, which was their first step in. Um, they did three deals. One of them was Sunrun, another was Opower. Yeah. And, uh, partnership turned him down on Enphase. Yeah. The hit, hit rate, like mine, amazingly high, right? Then they got out of the business because they were seeing so much activity in some other very highly profitable markets. And they probably got out before they would have realized that they'd actually hit the right strategy and, and deals. So what's so, the lesson, though? Is what I'm, I, I mean, I wasn't trying to insert an opinion. I was more trying to say, what what is the lesson for venture and for corporate when it comes to 
trying to create a new market around an opportunity like this? I mean, is it a mistake to start framing a market in terms of a technology, uh, for instance? In retrospect, would you say, you know, clean tech was sort of like, first off, you have the issue with clean, right? So that created a lot of issues. And then tech, I'm just trying to understand whether you sort of would argue that in the next decade, we shouldn't really, for instance, the same discussion could be had around nanotech, right? Nanotech is not a sector. Um, and arguably, it's more of a platform. So what I'm trying to understand is, would you say that your experience with this, having very strong uh, views on clean tech, actually kind of put blinders on some people? Or would you say it had nothing to do with the term? Like It's just hard to make, re to make money in any market. And in a new market, uh, if you get out too early, no matter what you call it, you, you just missed it. So the, um, as I said, the, the, when you're dealing with energy, scale is different, scale up is different, risk is different. Things that looked like an A-round bet were really science projects to, to a venture capitalist by their normal rules were really a science project. So, so that was yeah. the first misunderstanding. They yeah, just and, weren't even and that was the, the main their tools weren't ready for 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 that market. Correct. And largely this is because you have non-energy people yeah who know tech in those startups making all the decisions and there weren't a lot of folks that had both backgrounds. Like yeah how many of these guys had actually been inside a refinery? I mean, just, just literally ask one, have you been inside a refinery? Yeah. Yes or no? Okay. How are you trying to disrupt this thing? Like pick your favorite associate in your favorite, well, high quality Silicon Valley venture fund in circa 2006 and ask that associate, have you been inside of a refinery? Have you been to a gas fired power plant? Have you been on a rig? Yeah. Okay, not saying you're dumb. You're not. But what? How many? Where are your data points from, and how many are there? And so, yeah, the um, uh, part of it was just a learning curve of people that, arguably, we've now trained up some generations of of talent that did not exist a dozen years ago. So we should see better performance. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And on the on the flip side, is the same way. I deal with energy guys all the time. Amazing. Again amazing talent they've never been in a startup ever they've never worked for one none of their friends have worked for one they don't know what like they, they get they get in a boardroom and they have no idea what to hire they don't understand that you hire yeah vp of marketing you know or say a vp of sales on at x point in the life cycle they don't understand what that person's resume needs to look like they don't understand where you do the resource allocation in a startup so these worlds weren't communicating. Part of it is just collaborating. So wh where does that leave us? So you, you talked about this arbitrage between these sort of three types of expertise and, and separate communities. Uh, presumably, even for you, uh, to maintain kind of a unique uh, edge would ultimately hurt you, right? So presumably you're interested in training the entire market to become smarter because otherwise this transition will take too long for your returns. I'm going to assume that that's the case. How, what is your advice then to my listeners who either, they could be on either side, they're likely not you because you are a unique person here who has all of this experience. Where would you advise them to get informed, to stay up to date? How do you dip your uh, toes into this market if you are a VC, if you are a founder, 
or even if you are a corporate, but not typically an energy company? Because I mean, the energy companies, by and large, they are doing energy transition. I'm not so worried that you know that they wouldn't generally know what to do here. But anybody else who thinks there might be an opportunity in something called energy transition, what is your advice? Where where do they go? What should they do? So I, I would not start with enough hubris to imagine that I can train the whole whole world or you know, or even I'm the right person to do it. And I've made every mistake in the book as well. So it's it's not like you know, I've got anywhere near a bunch of silver bullets you know, you know, sitting in sitting in a revolver behind my desk. You know, don't have those silver bullets. They don't exist. Yeah. You know, um so there's a little bit of humility, however, that needs to come if you're a VC or an energy company or a startup in this sector. You need to understand that it's like walk a mile in the other guy's shoes. If you really don't understand exactly how the upstream guys are going to be able to take their costs out and what they can do, yeah, and how gas plays in the overall fuel mix. Yeah. And or on the other side, you don't understand, yeah, exactly how a solar system is going to compete with gas. Or if you, yeah, um, on whether it's ICs or EVs, if you don't understand each side of the auto industry, it's really hard to make good decisions. Yeah. So I have yeah, some biases, but part of them are driven by the fact that yeah, I'm very comfortable in either world. Yeah, I'm very, very, very comfortable. I would be, I would have no problem, yeah, capability-wise or yeah, relationship or network-wise, going to work in an EMP company and working hard at it. One of the first deals I did at Shell was an ocean bottom seismic company designed to do yeah, 4D for deep water drilling. That company did 50 million in its first year of revenue. Yeah, and did 500 million a few years later. Yeah, um, the the so trying to and and the tech in that. I mean, I mean these guys had basically a data center on a ship with a robotic system. Yeah, and they they did energy storage and power management. Yeah, five years ago in ways that people are only start now starting to figure out how to do because they're trying to put a node that went from this side to this side. Yeah, two miles underwater, and then get it back again, and still have it working, and do tens of thousands of them. Yeah. So the if you're a clean tech or VC investor and you're looking at clean tech, do you, are you going to be investing in seismic tech? Probably not. But if you don't understand what that can do to the cost structures of your substitutes and competitors, don't you think you ought to tread carefully? Before you go invest in something that says, oh, deep water can't compete. Well, you may be right. You don't know. Right. Um, and so I, I think this is really about yeah, um, being a bit of a sponge and learning everything. And the venture capital community has yeah, terms of art for it, the deep dive type concept. The problem with deep dives traditionally is they tend to be pretty narrow. Yeah. They also, what really happens is these guys get really smart in a very narrow bit, and they have blinders on something yeah, that's coming from the other side. So, for example, and this is a very old and bad example now, distributed generation was hot 20 years ago. Very, very. It, was the, it carried the first wave. It's where all the fuel cell deals came from and all that. Yeah? And largely distributed generation at the time was gas as a fuel source. And gas prices went to 10 bucks in MCF and every single one of those guys went out of business. All of them. Yeah. Today, distributed generation is back, but the fuel source is sunlight. It's solar and batteries. Yeah. 
different world. However, the whole microgrid concept is a blend of the two. Right? And we're seeing that and we're now seeing some amazing deals come out in these areas. Yeah. So if you don't understand gas economics and, and gensets and you're trying to do solar and batteries to compete with them because you think, oh, that's 100 year old tech. Well, no, it's not 100 year old tech. This is not what was being put in 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. And then if you and then then there's the, the second bit of, of kind of humility and hubris is go back over time. Energy, because of the scale requirements yeah, and the commoditized nature of the end product and the fuel supply, tends to be a commodity-driven and a um, uh, and a slow adoption cycle business. So the yeah, you've got to be able to look time shift. And a lot of the things that we're doing now, the research was done a long time ago. So for example, zinc bromine batteries, one of the core flow battery chemistries, was invented by Exxon in the 1970s. I, I've got yeah, you, you can go pull. Exxon, 10 years, 20 years ago, you could have pulled old Exxon researchers off the shelf who knew as much about that stuff as the greatest you know, um, uh, startup today. And so one of the things we always did, we kept old people around. You know, they'll ho Hopefully they don't get mad at me for saying that. We kept guys in our network that were, yeah, they're not just gray hairs. They've literally seen thousands of technologies in their life. So when you tell them, hey, yeah, I got this new whiz-bang electrolyzer, they're like, well, you know, the real problem with electrolyzers is X. So, and we hone in, have these guys actually solved the real problem? And where a venture capitalist will spend, you know, that doesn't know the sector, doesn't have a history, will spend four months trying to figure that out, looking at all the other problems and all that really matters is X. Yeah. And, yeah. And so you, you, if you get this kind of sense of history, so that you're never really looking at a new shiny penny and not realizing it's just the latest iteration of a, of a, of a play that's been run five times before. So if you don't understand the failure mechanisms of the earlier attempts at that tech, whether they were tech, commercial, cost, yeah, policy, what have you. And if you don't understand the breadth across all of energy, because energy is a system, right? We think the world is moving towards consumerization of energy. Great. Totally buy that. And electrification. But then you got to realize it's still at the behest of the PUCs. Texas is completely different than California because ERCOT's deregulated. And in California, your customer is the PUC. Whatever they want's going to go. In Texas, there's a thousand different power contracts done, you know, done personally. Even, even my partner, Craig, who lives in Austin, he lived in the Bay Area. Grew up in Florida, and now he lives in Austin, which is a muni. Yeah, he has never actually bought power for his house. I buy power every year. I go push the button and get a new power contract. And currently, I'm on all Texas wind for like seven cents. Yeah, and yeah. So if you don't have that breadth and the history, getting really deep in one area is just a way to create blinders. And that's the I've been giving this advice to startups and investors and venture capitalists for years. Stop trying this stealth crap. Yeah. Because you don't know enough to do it. That's the, that's the deep and narrow. That presupposes that all the people involved know everything that's needed to know about that tech and market to go. Instead, flatten the innovation curve. Yeah. Open it up and go talk to everybody and tell them exactly what you're doing. Like your worst competitor and the biggest possible partner. Yeah. Make sure you have the history and the breadth before you move. 
and then move like lightning. Look, I, I think what you're saying is fantastic advice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restrain myself from asking you about the future because you just told me, unless you have this massive prediction, that it's actually a little bit futile in, in this space right now because a lot of stuff is happening and because of the exponential curves. I mean, I typically ask my guests, you know, in the next decade, what do you think will happen? Seems to me that what you're saying is a lot of stuff will happen, but the curves are so exponential that... Whatever you do, don't listen to the curves that are not exponential. I mean, is there anything else to say? Should one stop doing foresight on energy? Uh, no, one just has to take it with a grain of salt. The, the, one of the challenges is the all the energy forecasting models are essentially deterministic. And yeah. they're basically um, GDP adjustment models and, yeah, uh, and, and capital cost yeah, loading order models, i.e., they take GDP by sector, by country, by whatever, and they break it down. And then essentially they've got an energy intensity factor on that GDP and that GDP growth. Then on the supply side, they say, all right, that tells us how much energy we need. So how many energy units are we losing, whether it's cars retiring, power plants out, whatever. Then so let's go add. Then, so how many yeah, new megawatts or cars have to be produced? Therefore, What's going to be the cheapest to produce at that point in time? So let's assume how many of each get built, roll that forward, put greenhouse gases on that, roll that forward again. The problem with that is the world doesn't behave that way. In, in reality, the energy intensity per GDP factors are changing faster than, you, than the models predicted. And like the simple one is, do you really believe that China and India are going to keep their energy intensity per unit of GDP factors as low, dramatically lower than OECD, the US and Europe, et cetera, for decades? I don't think so. Technology disruption will help that. And then do you really believe that we're not going to see any countries with peak demand going negative? Because for years, that's what they would show. Population growth plus those energy, they basically would mess around with the energy intensity factors to get the outcome that they thought was, was likely. And then on the supply side, we've consistently seen renewables outpace other forms of generation, right? The cost loading order in the, in the, when, the, when the world was basically driven by policy, i.e. it's renewable quotas that drove, and it really wasn't the incentives, it was the quotas that drove renewables. Yeah, it didn't matter what their costs were. The models would say we should put in 2% this year and we were putting in 50, right? Today, we're now in a world where the marginal cost is lesser. So it's actually flipped. We should be seeing only renewables, but we're not because it's geographically you know, dispersed. Some geograph geographies, uh, one resource is better than the other, and it's 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 policy constrained. I.e., in a lot of places, you can't just go all renewables, even if you wanted to today. Yeah. Um. So it's not just a cost curve. Then we had one other problem that was created when Kyoto failed. You know, when we didn't get a, a deal at Copenhagen. The, this concept of the single price, common price on carbon from cap and trade fractured. And we moved into a world of bilateral deals and tax and command and control mechanisms. The problem is what that means is there are effectively thousands of prices of carbon. The price of carbon inherent in the cafe standards for autos is completely different than the price of carbon in ERCOT for a coal-fired power plant. The price of carbon inherent in a Nike shoe, completely different. Yeah. So there is no common price of carbon to clear the market. 
our policymakers are literally have created the biggest morass you could possibly imagine. So the my original hope that we were going to walk down the carbon cost curve in a very low cost, you know, efficient way is gone. We're not it's not going to be efficient. Cap and trade was the way to do that. We're going to walk it down in the most inefficient possible way. Like if you want to take carbon out of the economy, the last thing you do is replace gas with renewables. It's just that's like it, it's it's not on. In fact, you would be better off waiting a couple of years until the solar and wind came down a cost curve and then doing it and replacing all the other gas specialty gases up front. You do methane capture first. Yeah. But when there's no cap and trade with offset mechanisms, the industry, which was rapidly responding to solve those problems, basically started building what the policies told them to build. So we've now got a very messy environment. Yeah. Um, albeit possibly with a political will or interest in overspending on the messy environment that will accomplish the same outcome, just with a lot more economic collateral damage. And the Green New Deal, is a, well, the Green New Deal is a case in point. And you know, what happened, so cap and trade is a mechanism created by you know, Americans to solve basically Knox and Sox acid rain in, in the 70s, in, in the 80s, right? And that it worked like a charm. Those cap and trade programs had no revenue generation. None. You do not have to have revenue generation in order to create the environmental outcome. In fact, it takes away from the environmental outcome. Sometime in the 2000s, our political left, not only here, but in Europe and across the globe, got a hold of cap and trade, and it basically looks like a taxing mechanism. Well, the moment they did that, they destroyed the interest of anyone on the right to work with them to accomplish said mechanism. Yeah. And so now we've got a thousand prices of carbon and yeah, taxing mechanisms with co-benefits and other things that don't help carbon that are mucking up our ability to hammer the hell out of climate change. Yeah. Um, I'm still yeah optimistic because I still think we have exponential curves. And when the corporate money flows, it swamps everything policymakers do. Fascinating, Neil. This has been uh, truly interesting and provocative, uh, I think, discussion. Uh, I wish you best of luck with Energy Transition Ventures, and I hope we can stay in touch because this topic, you know, is certainly not just not going away, but uh, it is also evolving in such, you know, ups and downs and sideways, uh, you know, uh, fashion that I think there's a lot to discuss here. As you're investing more, learning more, and a lot of people are going to get into this market and make their mistakes, and there's probably going to be another few Teslas, and it'll be exciting to watch those as well. So uh, thank you very much for your Absolutely. insight. Absolutely. Well, kind of the same phrase I've been using for 15 years. Energy is life, and the rest is just details. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much. You have just listened to episode 70 of the Futurized podcast with host Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of clean tech. Our guest was Neil Dykeman, managing partner and founder of Energy Transition Ventures. In this conversation, we talked about where we currently stand on energy transition. We discussed the disruptive forces at play and what the role is of energy policy versus the free market which energy models to trust, and the emergent energy mix and how it will evolve. When will renewables surpass fossil fuels in the U.S. and globally? 
exciting startups, emerging business model plays, macro trends, and the role of clean energy into the next decade. My takeaway is that clean tech is coming of age. The reason is slightly counterintuitive. It is not happening because of government action, at least not yet in the USA. It is not happening because more people want to save the planet. Rather, it's happening because renewables, after a slow rise over decades, are reaching energy parity with fossil fuels. No matter what happens to policy, to global treaties, or what might be the Biden presidency priorities, over the next few years, we will witness an energy transition without parallel in our history. Add some policy action to that, and we will experience a sea change, which is about time because sea levels are rising. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 12, Future of Nuclear Waste, or episode 15, The Future of Pre-Seed Investing, episode 20, Future of Engines, episode 21, Energy Storage, episode 63, Hunting for Emerging Tech, episode 76, Risk and Resilience, or episode 38, Disaster Risk Management. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.